the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look at First uh, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is this ancient letter from the first century that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church. And um, just like all good preachers, he starts with the word finally, like he's almost done. Um, and then he's about to just jump right into like the real easy parts of the faith, you know, like sex and money and uh, what to do when people you love die. So it, it sounds kind of like a conclusion to you, doesn't it? Uh, we're going to be taking a look here at this section starting in verse 4. I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 4 starting in verse 1. I invite you to hear with me uh, just a little part of Paul's quote-unquote conclusion to his letter. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that each of you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, as we come to these words that were spoken uh, a few thousand years ago, Lord, I pray that as we envision what our life is and as we envision the lives of these saints who have gone before us, Lord, that we would understand the change and the newness that you brought them. God, that we would understand the promise of what new life could mean for us. God, I pray that as we read these words, Lord, that they would not come to us as, as words from men, but as they really are, the words from the very God, the God who made us, the God who loves us, and the God who wants our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've spent the last uh, couple, of week, a couple of days uh, walking around the streets of Chicago. And uh, if you know Whitney and I, Chicago holds a very special place in our hearts because it was there in downtown Chicago that we had our very first apartment, our very first home together as newlyweds. Um, and so this, these last couple of days as I walked around the city and, and saw the sights and remembered the places that were there. I was remembering what life looked like in those uh, early days as I got this, this really different kind of new roommate, right? I'd had roommates before, but this, this was a different kind of roommate. 
I remember in, in that, those early days being in our apartment and um, realizing that, that things weren't always the same as what I envisioned them, that, that she didn't quite do things the way that I wanted her to do them. Like, you know, the important things. Like when I remember one day she, you know, emptied out the last of a yogurt container, right? And she scraped it out and, and tossed it in the garbage. It's like, what are you doing? I put it in the garbage. I was like, but, but what are we, where are we going to put our leftovers? She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, you just wash it out, and then it's like a free Tupperware we didn't have to buy. She's like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> right? But I grew up in this household where, like, if, if, if someone said, hey, could you go get the, the butter from the fridge, and by butter meaning country crock margarine tub, right? You'd go to the fridge, and there'd be six of them in there because one had spaghetti in it, one had uh, leftover vegetable soup, another had something else. And you had to open each one to find which one had the margarine in it. Speaking of which, my new roommate also for, for swore off margarine from ever crossing the threshold of the home. All of a sudden, I had to, to, to try to eat toast with a, a solid brick of butter on the middle of it that wouldn't spread, Right? It was this tiny little one-room, uh, uh, one-bedroom apartment with this insy, tiny little kitchen with like maybe four to six square feet of counter space, right? Half of which was devoted to our new espresso maker, right? You might think a toaster or maybe a microwave. No, 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 no. We had to have an espresso uh, machine. Right? And as she made these choices on my behalf, and I sat there, and I was like, this is crazy. What are you doing? Why are you using up the space this way? Why are you wasting this valuable commodity of an empty yogurt container? Right? Why can't we just get by on the margarine that spreads on the toast? Right? There were, it was, this was like mind-blowing to my like 21-year-old brain that, Different people lived according to different assumptions. That different patterns of life meant different things were obvious to them. Obvious decisions of what to do with an empty yogurt container. What to do uh, with a, a few square feet of counter space. Right? What to do uh, with your dietary choices. As we come to this scene, we, we come to this, this point of, of Paul writing to this church. And it's this church that we've seen over and over again that he identifies them by their portion of being a, a part of this story of God. This story of, of Christ's new church, of his death and resurrection that formed a community of people that had been shaped by this event of the resurrection. And as we come here to chapter 4, he starts to turn and he, he looks at particular portions of life, particular aspects of life, particular ethical categories, and he asks them, what does this new life look like here? What does it look like in sexual situations? What does it look like as the, uh, the, the people share their financial resources and means. 
But when we come here, we come to a place where there's very different assumptions of what the obvious thing to do is, right? Because this church uh, lived in a world, this church was made up of, of Greeks primarily who had grown up living according to different assumptions, who had lived, grown up living according to a different way of life. Right, so in the the ancient Greco-Roman world, if we're going to talk about sex, right, there's a pretty obvious and and clear assumption of the way this goes down. Right, if you can, then you do. Right, if you can get away with with having sex uh, whenever you want, then you do. Right. Sometimes when we think of like the old times, we we think of people being kind of prudish because of the last couple hundred years. But when, if you go a little bit farther back, you find a few other things. I'll give you a little sampling um, over a couple hundred years of Greco-Roman uh, philosophy and, and thought and, and civic leaders, right? Here's one from an Athenian uh, a couple hundred years earlier. Mistresses, he says, we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, wives in order to bear us legitimate children, right? A couple hundred years, the story hasn't changed much. This one's from Cicero. If anyone thinks that young men should be forbidden to have affairs, even with prostitutes, then he is very strict indeed. For his view is contrary not only to the law of this present age, but even with the habits of our ancestors and with what they used to consider allowable. For when has this not been common practice? Following, again, same story, different, different century. This a little bit after our, our letter to Thessalonica's. Uh, Plutarch is writing, and he writes a whole essay of advice to a, of, of newly wed couples. And he, he brings up this notion that there may come a time when uh, the, the young husband might find a, another woman to, to live out one act or another. And so he says, the, the wedded wife, though, ought not to be indignant or angry about this, but she should reason that it is out of respect for her that he did those things with another woman instead of her. Right? But beyond kind of the, just the the obvious, we'll, we'll, we'll save the, the blatant kind of one-sidedness, sexism of this, of all these quotes for another day, but just the, the pure assumption, right? The pure ingrained notion that, that if a man wants to have sex with another woman, then who can say no, right? Who can deny, who could restrain it? In fact, it's, it's, it's noble of him to find an outlet that, that is a little less obvious, that's a little bit more discreet, right? And, and to uh, a culture that in Thessalonica, sexual acts were not just hidden and, and discreet. They weren't shunned, or, but they were uh, a core part of most of the temple's uh, cultural celebrations. Their, their worship practices would include sexual acts in them. It was far from being a prudish area. It was a, it was a place where if you can, then you do. Of course, Paul says something a little bit different, right? He says here in, in verse 3 that you must abstain from sexual immorality. 
It's a blanket term that's used in the Bible to cover all sorts of different acts, whether it's it's uh, prostitution, whether it's adultery, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's um, a, the, a, an engaged couple who's not yet married. It's a, it's a term that's used in a variety of ways and places, but it's pretty clear that the idea is not if you can, you do. It's more um, even if you can, you don't, right? Even if the situation uh, evolved where you had the opportunity to take on an, a, an, un, an extramarital uh, time of having sex, then you don't do it. You don't go there, right? And Paul says it with such confidence, and he says it with such gravity and with such weight, right? You can hear the, 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 the power of his words, right? Not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, um, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We have told you before and solemnly warned you, right? And so a lot of the churches that you grew up in, while we might live in a world that uh, frowns upon certain aspects of uh, you know, prostitution or, or that kind of thing, uh, we still live in a world that's very much, if you can, you should, right? Or if you can without hurting someone, right? If you can get by by uh, looking at some pornography, if you can by uh, having uh, multiple partners, right? As long as you're not uh, going against someone's consent, then you are okay. And then we've, the church has kind of taken the other spectrum. They've come to First Thessalonians and they've heard the gravity and the seriousness of these words, of this life that's lived in front of God, a God who is a judge, and, and they've taken the opposite approach, and they've said, no, 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 even, you, you, you can't, cut it out, it's bad, right? It's dirty, it's, it's gross, you want to, to get away from it, you must constrain yourself and hold yourself back. And somewhere in the middle, or not in the middle, somewhere in a different way are the people of Thessalonica. We'll get there in a minute, because there's another, another topic here, not just sex. Another topic where an assumed response of any normal person in the Greco-Roman world in Thessalonica, the, the assumed response of the people in the church has to do with finances. He says here in, in verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, and then he goes on to talk about a specific aspect, a specific thing going on in the life of the church. And that was uh, that there was members of the church who found a way that they didn't have to work and they could still get by. Right? There's some debate over what exactly this is, but it likely has to do with this practice in the ancient church that, that resources were shared with everyone. Right? And so the very wealthy would uh, deplete their wealth for the sake of, of the common good, and, and the poor would be able to eat because of that. But there were folks who figured out pretty quickly that this system uh, could work in their favor, right? Because if they didn't have food, then food would magically be given them. If they didn't have clothes, then they could magically be given things. If you don't have to work, right, if you can get out of work, then you do, both in the church and outside of the church. Now, we might not think of this as being um, some that this is, is 
for those of, of you who hold down a job, this is an area where you might start feeling pretty good, right? And start looking at other people. But there's something else I saw in Chicago uh, a, a couple months ago, and it was a billboard that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, interesting because it's the first time that I've seen a retirement ad target my age group, right? Um, this is a sign of, you know, I know you all think I'm still a baby, but right, I, I go to Chicago and it, it's this ad that's targeting millennials, which I'm on the very oldest end of this millennial generation. And it says, they say millennials are lazy, retire early and prove them right. Clever, I'll give them that, clever. Um, beyond the fact that I don't have any imagination of when retirement could possibly be coming for me, but the, the idea there, right, the, the, world, the, 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 the view of the world, of the assumption of the ad is that if you can garner and, and hoard and save up all your wealth to the point that you no longer need to work for it, then you do. Not so you can pursue another activity, not so that you can engage in a different level of, of the work of life or the church, but so that you can be lazy. The uh, wealth of that kind is unimaginable in the ancient church. Paul doesn't even need to address it because those who have have already self-impoverished themselves for the sake of the other. But for us in our world, we think if we've made the money, then not working is, well, okay. If you can get away with it, then do it. But you notice Paul's command to work with your hands includes so that you won't be dependent on anyone, but also so that you can walk properly before the outsiders. That life in God's world always involves the toil of our hands. It always involves a, a contributing to society and a contributing to the church. That we are always, as long as we're able, contributing to the needs of others. And so once again, it's not just if you can, if you can get away with not working, then don't work. It's now a, a, a different sort of question, right? That even if you can get away with it, then... You don't. So where does it leave us? Where does it leave our lives? It's, it's funny that he chooses these areas because when I think about sex and when I think about money, right? These are the two areas uh, that the church has used most forcefully the, the driving power of guilt in the life of its people debatable, but it seems true to my experience. They're the two areas where, where we uh, are more, most prone to try to control people by uh, the, the use of saying heavy-handed things like 10% um, tithe is an absolute minimum. If you're not giving that much, then you are robbing God, right? There, there's an assumption that happens in the way we talk about sex in the church where it's inconceivable that anyone would be one of those sexually immoral people, right? Because it's here in this text. It, it, it says it in this text that this is not the way of the resurrected life. But it's important for us to understand 
the context that this passage is written in. It's important for us to understand that this passage is exhorting us to live before God. And it is exhorting us to live for his approval and for his glory. It's exhorting us to live according to the pattern of sex and according to the pattern of money that exemplifies God's kingdom. And it, it, an example, it teaches us to live before God because God is a judge. And so it ought to be taken seriously. But it only says to live before God after it's talked about living with God. It doesn't talk about uh, the life you live before God, that is, with God as your audience, with God as your judge, with God as your approver, before, until after it elaborates and it repeats over and over and over again a life that's lived with God. And you see it here in this passage, even as he starts right in verse in chapter 4 he says as you have received in the same message that that brought you into the faith the same message that you are a sinner in need of god is the same message that brings you into the life of holiness he says you do not live in the passion of lust like the gentiles who do not know god but what does that assume it assumes that you know god right it it, it assumes that that this appeal to you comes not as your first interaction with a, a, a sexual ethic, but as a fulfillment after you've already known God, after you've already seen God, after you've already encountered him. It tells us in, in verses 7 and 8 that God has called you not to holiness, but in holiness, that God has already taken a broken and sinful person, and he has brought them into his family. Chapter in verse 9, as he talks on uh, about life together, living life together, living life, sharing of resources and, and our own finances, he says, you yourselves have been taught by God. Holiness. We see it in this word come up in, in verses 3 and 4 and 7. Holiness is this word that we use in church, and, and a lot of us just think it means getting right with God, right? That it's just doing the right thing, that it's just being the right person. But holiness in the Bible is God's attribute. Holiness in the Bible is, is when it says that God is so completely different. When it says that God's manner of life is so completely other than our own default assumptions, than our own uh, obvious choices, the way that God sees the world, the way that God operates, the way that God loves, the way that God thinks is so completely different. And to those people who have been with him, he says, therefore, as I am holy, you be holy. Holiness is not the command before Holiness is only the command after those who have been with God to be different, to operate in a different sort of way, to have a different limp to our walk, to have a different uh, tick to our voice, to be people who look like they have been with God. People who have experienced a life. You see, in church, we often uh, use guilt and shame and failure because you read these words and you realize instantly, that's not me. 
that's not me. As I look out in, in this congregation, I, I think one of the things that I, uh, my default assumption with each and every one of you, because it's the default assumption of my own heart, is that you are sexually broken. One way or another to different lengths and to different uh, exaggerations, whether you think too highly of sex or think too lowly of sex or whether you're grossed out by sex, right? whatever the case of your sexual life, you are broken. And that's why you are a good recipient for a letter like this. See, we think of holiness as being something that we can fake, something that we can use self-discipline uh, on, and yet in almost every letter that's written to a church, the apostles bring up sexual immorality, and they bring it up because the people who are at church, the people who are, are called uh, loved by God in verse 4, they're the people who are committing sexual immorality. Right? The reason Paul writes it to these people is because he assumes and he knows that they are broken. That this is an area where they have shrunk back from the life of Christ, where they have hidden themselves in fear and shame and guilt. But when we use guilt and shame and fear, we base our, our actions on the assumptions of the world that we can only find acceptance if we live according to a certain rubric, that we can only find community if we do what the people around us think is right, that if, if we um, can only find uh, affirmation of ourselves, if we have something of worth. Whether you are outside of the church and pursuing sexual fulfillment wherever you can find it, or whether you're in the church and trying to, to live out a, a written and spoken law of life, whether you're outside of the church and you spend your money as you please, or you're inside the church and you donate a 1% of your money to a good cause. In all of those cases, we're just trying to find acceptance. We're trying to find security. We're trying to find a group of people who looks at us and says, you are okay. This letter to the Thessalonians starts with the declaration of who you are. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know, brothers, that just as you have been taught by God to love one another, that as you will do so more and more, we know, brothers, that just as those who have walked with Jesus, your lives will increasingly look more and more like the sexual freedom that God gives us in his own time and place. Being with God transforms us first. And that's what gives us the power and the way forward to live in front of God. We, the life, the good life that we can live before God, the good life that's possible to live before God, comes from the life we live with God first. So what does it mean for us? Some of us, as we gather here and we start to talk about money and how much you give or don't give, how much you uh, base your anxiety levels upon the whims and the, the throws, how much money uh, dominates your hearts, it can feel like an impossible task. 
If we were to, to do a biblical study of the ways and the patterns that God's people give of their money and share of their resources, we all are going to be beat-faced, red, and embarrassed, broken down, and, and paralyzed by the impossibility of it all. If we are to go through the Bible and we are to, to look at the kind of sexual life that is pleasing to God, a sexual life that, that mirrors and imitates the good life of God's world, we each are going to look at our own lives beat-faced and red, ashamed and paralyzed because we think it's just not possible. But to those of us who feel impossibly broken, who feel that we could it's not possible for us to live according to the, the rule that Gapal gives us. Remember that context. Remember the starting place. Because the starting place is God's acceptance of us, and the power and the way forward is for us to find life with God. If the original idea is that you are, are called holy by God and then made holy by being with God, then the same pattern is true over and over and over again. Because the farther you get away from the vision of God, even as believers, the, 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 the distance that we put between our lives and the lives that God envisions for us, the, 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 the more we look at the promises and the hopes of God and we think of them as being a pipe dream being uh, kind of sugary talk or being unrealistic. The farther we get from the community of people who know not just us, but know our doubts, who know our struggles, who know our fears, the farther we get from life with God, the more impossible this kind of life looks like for us. Some of us here this morning uh, have been Christians for a long time. And, and these, uh, these laws of how to behave, how to act, how to uh, live life in a community, they, they seem so over the top and impossible that apathy has, has wor worn us down to the place that we, we kind of have made our own compromises. We found our own ways of feeling like we're doing okay, that the impossibility and the absurdness, seemingliness of God's commands has worn down to, to, to where we're, we found a sweet compromise where we can sleep at night without, while still fudging a little bit on the details. And to those of us who are in that position, the, the, the words of Paul here are striking. That no one uh, transgress and wrong his brother. That your actions, your compromises are indeed serious. And they call us, they beckon us, not towards judgment, but they beckon us to come and be forgiven again. And for those of us who are wondering, where do we go from here? We've had our ups and downs. We've had our bruises and our assaults. We've taken that which we could not, were not to take, and we've let go those things that we ought to have taken. We've held on dearly for life and yet found it empty. And as we come to this text, it invites us 
not just to give up sexual immorality, not just to give up a selfish life that desires uh, idleness and laziness. It invites us to take hold of that which took hold of us to begin with, and that is a life with God. Because if you're not experiencing security from Christ, your default will be to take find security in your bank account. If you're not experiencing affirmation of your worth from being called the child of God, then you will seek out and you will go back to your default operating level of trying to find affirmation in the eyes of, of another person, be they virtual or, or be they real. If you're not experiencing fellowship, not just like having dinner with someone. If you're not experiencing a life where you look upon one another in your brokenness and you say you are a child of God who has been made for so much more, then you will find that fellowship in the arms of another lover who will give you that sense, that fleeting sense that you are welcome and that you're embraced. We need community, not wrist slappers, that people who dream more for our good than we could dream for ourselves. We need a pattern of talking to God, not just about the things we want God to think of us, but about, God, why do I want this so bad? Why does this seem so impossible? God, are you sure that this is what is good for me? We need a people who, who gather around a table to remember what happens to our sins. We need a people that gathers around the words of our God, and we need a people who gathers to sing God's name aloud. Because as we're being reminded, as we're tasting, as we're seeing the life of God, then our imagination will be open. And, and, and this absurd and impossible chastity, this absurd and impossible uh, benevolence and love becomes not absurd and possible not just possible, it becomes the new you, the person God is making you to be, the person that God desires for you to be, a people who can live in holiness because they've been with one who is holy. Pray with me. God, as we gather for worship this morning, Lord, as we look at the, the scriptures, say, and we look at the reality of our lives, God, as we feel the pains and guilt and the desire of shame to make us hunch back and be destroyed, Lord, we pray that these words would be an invitation to us, an invitation to come into the light where you are, to come into the light where your people are, to come into the light and to experience the power the transformation and the new life that is offered to us in the cross of Jesus Christ, the life and the power that is offered to us in the risen tomb because we have a living God and we cannot be the same. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.